things get a little bit grim. But this is especially heinous. Did you tell the police that she was murdered, May? Nope. Witchy ghost stuff. Ah! Don't make me scared. A spooky girl amateur hour. I did not drink enough water. Uh, I highly suggest an um, investment into Pedialyte. Pedialyte. Is that what's in your mason jar? With bubbly water. Oh. It's delicious. Is it? Mm Mm-hmm. And I'm so hydrated. Is that... (laughs) Are you drinking Pedialyte and sparkling water? Yes. Right now? Mm Mm-hmm. I really... You want to try it? Yeah. It tastes like fruit punch. Oh, my gosh. That is so refreshing. Right? Shout out to my friend Jamie for the introduction on that. Is Uh, that like a hangover cure? Yeah. And I go through phases where I just, like go three or four days where I'm like, I haven't had very much water at all. Mm -hmm. So I'll drink like one of these in the morning the next day. And it does help with a hangover too. But uh, she and I were hanging out last night and watching The Mummy. Uh. And uh, we decided we weren't going to be drinking. So we like made these like mocktails. They're so cute. It was cute. And she used Crystal Light packets instead of Pedialyte. But I was like, this is a good idea. Crystal light and bubbly. Uh-huh. Interesting. It's so good. That's so smart. But you only can use half oh, of a I'm, packet because... It'll over... Yeah. Yeah. Overpowering. But it was delicious. I, I have to be honest, and this is going to make me sound very bland, <laughs> but I enjoy just the whisper of flavor that is associated with flavored sparkling water. It's like LaCroix lime. Oh, that's what I have in my fridge. Yeah. There is nothing that I will find more satisfying. Mm. That's true. I've been, I had been doing another uh, mocktail that was club soda with, um, or a like lime sparkling water and then orange bitters mm. and like a lime or lemon wedge. And it's so good. Delightful. Josephine, stop bullying your brother. You're such an asshole. Your brother is going to punch you in the face. He's scared of her. Oh, Izzy, you weenie. Look at him. So prissy. Oh, my gosh. Oh, Always the cat, the cat parade. Yeah. Over we, here. You never know what it's going to be over here. Yeah. I will tell you, um, speaking of uh, mocktails and cocktails, uh-huh. um, and this is going to make you feel so justified. Okay. But I am recently finding myself really enjoying grapefruit <gasps> juice and grapefruit flavored things. Yes. Come to me. I know I'm coming. I bought a grapefruit oh, the other day. Oh, so I, good. I put it in a simmer pot. So, like, I didn't eat it. I will get there. You will get there. But it's the flavor. Like, once you start, like, enjoying that grapefruit, like, bitter bitter flavor. Yeah. Mm, that's so good. It's, I foresee it coming in my future. But in this particular instance, I had it in a Paloma. Oh. Which was truly delightful. Was it? Yeah. It was a nice little cocktail. Oh, they have, uh, I got my classic grapefruit martini drink that they make me at club soda the other night uh-huh and then i switched it up and i got something that was watermelon so watermelon Ooh. smash okay very good so shout out club soda i have a hard time with things that are supposed to be watermelon flavored because i find that they're always like overly saturated uh, with flavor that like artificial watermelon mm-hmm. i don't care for this really wasn't like that the ice cubes were frozen chunks of watermelon oh so that's nice i liked that that was nice 
I like that. I like watermelon, like, muddled with basil. Oh, yeah. Some good-ish right there. Yeah. Anyway, wow. Welcome to Drinking Corner with Jenny and Taylor. <laughs> We're a food podcast now. Food and beverage. <laughs> <laughs> if we keep going in a circle, we might find our way back to a true crime somewhere. But uh, Oh, I'm sure there's it. there's some murder associated with the watermelon somewhere. And if it's out there, we will find it. Yes. Um, so welcome to A Little Bit Grim, the actual podcast, <laughs> where uh, Jenny and I tell each other spooky stories once a week. That's Taylor, by the way. That's Jenny over there. Hi. Hi. So tell me about the Congress Plaza. Oh, I know we just spent like five minutes gabbing, but um. oh, um, it was so that's the answer. It's such a cryptic post on the Facebook group that I made, and I never gave any answer. No, I was at the Congress Plaza. Oh, um, it was so charming. Was it? It was enchanting. It really was. Cute. It was like it's beautiful. It's right off Michigan. Um, so pretty. Like the most ornate. Like fixtures, light fixtures. The lobby was beautiful. Oh, nice! And it really, I can see how it could be like a little unnerving because so much of it is original. Okay. Um, and as you walk through, you're like, oh, this is an old ass hotel, yeah. and um, they still have like the original number plates on all the <gasps> doors, like the metal ones that are tarnished, and oh, oh like, cool. it's so all of the rooms like inside were updated and our room was really really nice but like definitely in the hallways and the way it's laid out it's like a little squirvy like you okay. never really know like, where you're going amazed the elevators are small oh um so cool but like because it's old so as you're walking through these like long winding hallways of rooms you can hear like voices and knocks and bangs from like the people yeah in there but it really like if you just walk through it sounds like voices whispering to you in the, Weird. in the hallway and there were knocks in the night but for all of my hoping I did not see a ghost Rats. at least I don't think I did yeah dang it I next know. time it's okay it serves you right I think if you would have seen a ghost without me I'd have been so mad at you. <laughs> it's like the spill canvas all over again yeah <laughs> the jealousy will kill me <laughs> but it was really really good oh I'm How- glad Oh my gosh. Well, today, um, what are we doing today? True crime. True crime. Do we know whose turn it is? <laughs> no. Hold on. What did we do last? Paranormal. Mm-hmm. What did you do? I did the, a hotel. I did Monta Vista. Uh-huh. What did you tell me? I don't know. <laughs> oh, uh, the music hall. Oh, yeah. So I think I went first. Okay. So it's your turn. Okay. Ah, <laughs> uh, this this is this is a good one. Okay, it's got um a little bit of everything. So I'm gonna give you like a preface. Okay. Um, I'm very sorry in advance for even telling you this like true crime. Um, it's a pre-apology. I will let you know that this case has been resolved. As of July 17th, 2021. Oh, my God. Very recent. Um, Currently awaiting sentencing. I heard about this on TikTok. Okay. And if I I can find the specific creator, I'll, like, we can link them in the show notes. Um, But when I heard about this on TikTok, and I was like, oh, interesting. I'll look into that. And then I looked into it. Uh And this was not what it appeared to be like there was so much more oh, gosh. to this um i just thought it was about like a a guy who went on the dr phil show it, it is not it but this is um dylan redwine's 
murder. Okay. Um, I would like to genuinely offer my heartfelt and sincerest condolences to his family members and loved ones. It's super recent. Mm. Um, but like reading through this, it super broke my heart. Oh, baby. So November 19th, 2012, Dylan Redwine went missing. He was in Durango, Colorado over Thanksgiving break, visiting his father, Mark Redwine, on court order. Elaine Hatfield, Dylan's mother and Mark's ex-wife, were obviously divorced and um, had shared custody over Dylan. His older brother, Cody, was not required to go with Dylan to go visit their father over Thanksgiving. Okay. Dylan um, is described as a spirited child who loved baseball, pizza, video games, and always had a smile on his face. Dylan had flown to the La Plata County Airport November 18th, 2012, for the visit with his father, who um, lives in Felicito, which is right outside Durango. So, like, on a little ranch out in the country. All right. During the investigations, detectives did confirm that he arrived at the airport and went to McDonald's in Walmart in Durango with his dad before they went to his dad's home on County Road 500 north of the Felicito Reservoir. Dylan had lived with his mom and brother in Bayfield until the summer of 2012 when they moved to Monument near Colorado Springs. On the evening that he landed, he was texting with his friends and made plans to meet up with them early the next morning in Bayfield. But that evening, the text stopped abruptly. No one heard from him or saw him again except for his father. Mark Redwine told investigators that he got up early the next morning and tried to wake up his son to take him to Bayfield, but Dylan wouldn't get up, so he left for Durango to do errands. Investigators confirmed that he was in Durango for three to four hours. When he came home, Dylan was gone. At first, he said he wasn't too concerned, figuring he had left with one of the friends that he was texting that night. That afternoon, uh, Mark texted his ex-wife asking if she had heard from their son. Elaine called police, setting into motion a search that later involved the Bayfield Marshal's Office, the La Plata County Sheriff's Office, Colorado Bureau of Investigation, the FBI, um, search personnel from area fire agencies, hundreds of volunteers, and from day one, Elaine suspected Mark. Okay. Elaine said it was disheartening at first when she knew foul play was involved and police said that he could have run away, but she said that she knew her son and he wouldn't do that. Mm -hmm. If Dylan would have run off, Dylan would still be alive, she said. There's just, why do we always go with they ran away? They never ran away. Hardly ever do they actually ever ran away. That's not a thing, especially not for that long. No. I could see, like, when I was little, I was like, I'm running away. And I'd, like, get my backpack, get, like, two snacks, and I'd make it to, like, the corner. Right. And I'd be like, it's hot out here. (laughs) I want to go home. I want to go home. I can't watch Twister out here. Yeah. (laughs) So it's just, that's so ridiculous to me that still to this day, it is still like, uh, she probably ran away. Yes. It it is frustrating, especially in this, because it's about to get a, a lot more frustrating. Yeah. Um, she insisted from the beginning that if Dylan wanted to leave that bad, he would have called her. Yeah. Uh, she said that her son's flight to Durango originally had been scheduled for Saturday, November 17th, but was canceled and then rescheduled for the next day. According to Elaine, her son hadn't really wanted to make the visit at all and asked her, Mommy, is it a sign? In hindsight, she expressed that she wished she had never put him on that flight to Durango, but at the time felt like she had no other option. It was court-ordered, and she didn't have a reason to believe any harm would find her son. Mm -hmm. That was until she got the text that he was missing. Brandon Redwine, Dylan's half-brother, only found out um, about Dylan's disappearance after reaching out to Corey. The older brother. The older brother. Okay. Um, He said during his testimony in the court proceedings that communication between Brandon and his father had become sporadic. Uh, Brandon, along with his wife and children, drove to Durango from Gilbert, Arizona to help search for Dylan. 
Corey, Brandon, Mark, and David Stone, who's Mark's brother, sat down one night to develop a plan to search for Dylan. Brandon said the group encouraged Mark to be more active in the case, and Brandon told jurors that it was very frustrating to watch Mark be so uninterested in in the search for Dylan, um, urging him to, like, get involved. It was, like, pulling teeth with him to get him to, like, participate in any of the search. In, like, the search for his child? Yeah. Okay. Right, and Mm -hmm. he was just, like, a very passive bystander to all of it. That's so weird. The next day, Brandon, Mark, and David Stone drove up Middle Mountain Road to look for Dylan, but after 20 minutes of driving, Redwine told the group Dylan wasn't up there. Brandon also recounted that, quote, I figured my dad knew something. I didn't know what he knew, but I didn't know how he knew it. Uh, how <sighs> terrible to be so suspicious of somebody. And that- have yeah. no, no, no proof. Right. Oh, it's just, it's so slimy. Betsy Horvath, who was married to Redwine for six years, was interviewed and recalled that during a family camping trip in the late 1980s, so like way before any of this happened, um, they were in a remote location. It was getting dark and she felt scared after Mark told her the mountains would be a good area to uh, get rid of a dead body. What? Mm -hmm. No, no, homie. When she learned Dylan was missing, she remembered the remark and reported it to police, thinking it could provide answers about what happened to Dylan. She said that she felt sick to her stomach. Mm, good for her, though. Yeah. That's exactly what you're supposed to do. Like, those small little details, like, can solve murder cases. Mm-hmm. So. <sighs> Before Dylan's remains were found, Brandon said he frequently asked his father what he thought happened to Dylan. Eventually, Brandon asked his father directly, do you know where Dylan is? Um, Mark said, I know where Dylan's at. He's in my heart. Ugh. Uh, Brandon said that Mark was stoic and didn't appear sad upon first learning of Dylan's remains being found. Brandon said, I didn't understand it because if it were my son, I'd be a lot more emotional. Right. And, uh, Brandon testified that Mark also used the term blunt force trauma when Dylan's remains were first found, which struck him as odd because no skull had been found and no testing had been done to determine if the body, um, like suffered blunt force trauma. So he... They did not find his head. Not at first. No. Uh, He also said that Mark spoke passionately and very directly when using the term blunt force trauma. And Brandon remembers telling his wife, he's telling me what happened and he's not telling me exactly what was used, but we don't have enough information to be thinking about blunt force trauma. It just shocked me a bit because I didn't see where it was coming from. Hmm. Friday 13th, 2013. Oh. So about three months. After the disappearance. Okay. The family appeared on the Dr. Phil show. So, okay, hold on. We're is back. This... We're going back in time. Okay. This is before the body was found. I see. Okay. Yep. All right. Yeah. We back went on time. Dr. Phil. Three months after, after he went he... missing. Mm-hmm. That's very soon. It is very, it is very soon. But it, <sighs> Elaine kind of tries to explain that. Okay. It lists, it's All right. A, All right. It's a mess, especially knowing what we know now. Can you find it? You cannot find the entirety of the episode. You can find probably like 35 minutes of like clips and interviews and like sections from the episode. Mm -hmm. But it's so messy. And I sat there and I watched clips forever. Okay. Tell me what happened. So at this point when they appeared, communication between Elaine and Mark had broken down entirely. 
She was still convinced that Mark was either involved or responsible for her son's disappearance, and Dylan had been missing without a trace for nearly three months now. Mark had blocked Elaine's number. Blocked her number! (laughs) And she had no other way of communicating with him about it. So she was like, get your butt to Dr. Phil, we'll work this out. He blocked her number, like, days. Oh. After he went missing. Because... In his response to it was like, well, she would like harass me all the time about it. And I had nothing else to say to her. So what am I supposed to, I just blocked her. (laughs) Sir. I know. Okay. Like I said, the episode is a hot mess. The intro montage includes a heartfelt, although hollow sounding plea from Mark that they aired. And he said, I just want everyone to know how much I love that boy and how much I cared about him. He was such a wonderful boy, and I'm reaching out to anyone who can help us find him. Um, no police force has ever offered me an honorary degree in, like, detectivery. Uh-huh. Weird. Uh, is that it? Detec- detectivism? But- detectorology? <laughs> detectorology. Is it a degree? Is it a trade school, like plumbing? Can you... <laughs> <laughs> like, where you get... Do you just get, like, on-the-job experience and get promoted? I don't know. Someone find a cop. Let us know. I think you have to be a cop first and then you get promoted to detective. Is that how it works? Yeah. I don't know. I think so. All I'm I know is Mariska Hargitay. <laughs> Unless you wanted to be a private detector. Detector? Ooh, investigator. A PI. Yeah. Yeah, I could do that. Not well, but I could do it. Go ahead and start our third business. Any? Yes. Anyway, I got so distracted. But like listening to him, he spoke about him in the past tense the entire time. That he, like, talked about Dylan, but, like, his body hadn't been found yet. And he, that we're only three months in. Right. It would be different if this was 20 years later. Where it would be, like, reasonable to assume. Yeah. But it's just so, I'm no psychologist. I'm just saying. I'm just saying it's sus AF. Oh, absolutely. For sure. Um, anyway, he's been missing for three months. Um, no forensic evidence anything um the episode continues mark recounts his version of dylan's appearance which is everything that they confirmed by investigators flew in landed went to mcdonald's went to walmart came home mark ran more errands the next morning um when mark returned he said the tv was on playing nickelodeon and dylan was gone along with his fishing pole and when mark got home he didn't notice that dylan's backpack was missing but it was Mm-hmm. Mark then laid down and took a nap. He says that was no longer than an hour, which is also very sus to me. Like, either that's a lie or he's one of those people he can lay down and take a nap for, like, 25 to 30 minutes and, like, feel rested and refreshed. Yeah. And I just feel like those types of people are sociopaths. Ah. Uh, mm, I see mm. how you can see that. Yeah. Very sus. Um, anyway, so Mark says that he went out and looked for Dylan around 2.30 or 3. And reach out to Dylan's friend, Ryan, um, who he was texting the night before about, like, making plans with. And Ryan said he hadn't heard from him at all. And then Mark says he went straight to the Marshall's office, which is very wild, wild west of Colorado to yeah. call it that. But that's where he went. While he was at the Marshall's office, that's when he contacted Elaine. On the show, Mark affirms that he is not responsible for Dylan's disappearance. Elaine says, bullshit. And Mark's story doesn't add up. But, um... She says that Dylan was, wasn't a fan of fishing, never enjoyed fishing, yeah. and that her son did not like to watch Nickelodeon and preferred MTV, <laughs> and that Mark didn't even know his son well enough to be able to make up a lie about his whereabouts. Wow. 
Dr. Phil got on a soapbox about how he isn't, he isn't hosting them on his show to accuse her ex of killing Dylan and that his sole purpose to, is to raise awareness and bring national attention to this case. And to be fair, that happened. Um, Dr. Phil proceeds to host a Mark Redwine ex-girlfriend parade. All of his ex-wives and ex-girlfriends get on the show and say, no, there's no way. Like, there was one that was like, there's no way that Mark could be responsible for this. He loved his family. He's such a good person. And so she starts pointing her fingers at Elaine. Elaine is pointing her fingers at Mark. Mark is pointing his fingers at Elaine because he has nothing else to do. It oh, is my gosh. a mess. Wow. Okay. So that was in February of 2013. Uh-huh. And in June 2013, we found Dylan's partial remains 10 miles away from Mark's home. Okay. In November, the skull was found by hikers one and a half miles away from his body. Oh, my God. Mark was not initially arrested for his son's murder. Don't ask me why, but he was not. And actually, he moved to Washington. He was probably like, goodbye. Bye. I'm out. <laughs> Catch you me later. later. They had to extradite him from Washington to come back to. I hate him. Yeah, I also hate him. Dylan Redwine and his father, Mark, had a tense relationship. Mark tried to downplay that to law enforcement after his disappearance, but after some digging, it was pretty obvious. Persecutors at persecutors? <laughs> Prosecutors. Persecutors. <laughs> Prosecutors asked Sixth Judicial District Court Chief Judge Jeffrey Wilson to allow Dylan's statements to family, friends, and legal professionals in an attempt to convince a jury of Redwine's guilt. In a notice to the court, District Attorney Christian Champagne offered 13 conversations with 10 people to be admitted as evidence. And this is directly from the court order. Okay. Text messages between Dylan and his brother, Corey, in which Dylan asks for, quote, compromising photos to confront his father. Text messages between Dylan and his mother, Elaine Hall, showing Dylan was unhappy about visiting his father. Electronic communication showing Dylan would rather hang out with friends than his father. Statements to a friend that Dylan did not want to go to his father's house. Statements to a friend that Dylan was not excited to see his father. Statements to a friend contradicting Mark Redwine's statements about the relationship with Dylan. Statements to his brother's friend that Dylan didn't feel like being with his father. Statements heard by Mark Hall, which is Elaine's husband, that indicated Dylan did not want to spend time with his father and rather intended to stay with friends. Statements to Corey that Dylan did not want to visit and reasons why that explained, quote, the tension that ultimately was part of the motive for the crime. Statements to Elaine about Dylan's dislike for his father, his reasons for, re for refusing to communicate with him before he disappeared. Statements to his mother's divorce attorney, Amber Harrison, about how Dylan was uncomfortable being with his father because he had seen compromising photos. Statements to a woman about Dylan's complaints about his father talking bad about his mother and brother, that Dylan wished his father wouldn't get so angry, and, quote, that he could stay away from that scary stuff. Statements to a judge about Dylan's preference to stay with, the, stay with his mom. Hmm. Trigger warning for the compromising photo that was key to this case. Okay. Uh, I'm sorry for what I'm about to say, but Dylan had seen a photo, or rather a selfie, of his father wearing a red lace brassiere and adult diaper, seemingly eating fecal matter out of a used diaper he was holding in his hand. Please do not Google it. Oh, it is on the internet, clear as day. It is exactly as I described. Do not look for yourself. I have not known peace ever since I saw this photo. I'm horrified. Yes, there were a couple. There's a couple of photos. Okay. 
Are you're gonna look it up yeah, right now? Yeah, I'm gonna look it up. Okay. Okay, you tell me when you find it. All right, I will keep going. Prosecutors were able to convince a jury, and on July 17th, 2021, Mark Redwine was found guilty of second-degree murder and child abuse, resulting in death. He will be sentenced October 8th at 9 a.m. and faces up to 48 years in prison. Um, so, with the entirety of the details out there, in all of my research, because I do that now... I did not find one singular, mingular piece of physical evidence implicating Mark in Dylan's murder. The defense team um, affirmed the entire duration of the trial that there was no way to know his cause of death, as the only forensic information was how his skull stayed in a state of decomposition that was um, juicy, for lack of a better term. Oh, Lord. And was exposed to animals and more decomp than his other remains, and no forensic evidence was able to be garnished from it. Um, making it so that, like, a grand jury convicted Mark with only circumstantial evidence, which I didn't even know could happen. So I Googled, can you be convicted of a crime with only circumstantial evidence? And Google said this. The notion that one cannot be convicted on circumstantial evidence alone is, of course, false. Most criminal convictions are based on circumstantial evidence, although it must be adequate to meet established standards of proof. See also hearsay. I did not Google hearsay. (laughs) Okay. But I just thought that there's no, like, concrete, you know what I mean? Like, I'm glad that he was charged. Like, there's no... He didn't leave DNA on the body. They didn't find any DNA of Dylan inside the house. There was nothing. Wow. Also, yes, these are horrifying. Oh, did you find them? Yeah. They're foul. They are exactly what I said they were. Yep, exactly. And I am. We will not be posting these on the Instagram. No, no, no. I hope that he gets the help that he needs. Yes. Because these photos are indicative of mental illness. Yes. Correct. Not to laugh at mental illness. I laugh when I'm nervous. But <laughs> this is horrifying. First time watching a man eat poop, kind of nervous. <laughs> yeah, it was absolutely horrifying. I will say the TikTok was just like, did you know that this man appeared on the Dr. Phil show after brutally mur- murdering his son? And I was like, what? Why? Right. And so I Googled it and I was like, oh, oh shit. <gasps> I tumbled down the rabbit hole so quickly so far so fast so far so fast and i believe in my heart of hearts that mark redwine murdered his son in the mountains yes absolutely i have no doubt in my mind that that's exactly what happened yeah i me either but i it i think it's wild that there was not one itty bitty teeny tiny scrap of and maybe they just didn't release anything you can watch all of the court was like publicized yeah because it's recent yeah so you can go back and you can watch all of it. And I did not because that is hours and hours and hours. Um, so maybe there was like something discussed, but in all of the news articles. Oh, do you want my sources? Yes, I would love your sources. My sources were thejournal.com, givnews.com, Castle Rock News Press, and the Dr. Phil Show. Nice. Yeah. Woof. What Woof. a story. What a story indeed. So sad. I know. But we okay. will have an update on October 8th. Yeah. So... Keep an eye out for, on the social media, we'll post it. On them heckin' social meds. Yeah. We got a lot of ish happening in October. Mark Redwine's getting sentenced. Ugh. We got some other big stuff going on that so we're not ready to tell you. <laughs> so many. I love it so much. Hold on. 
Let me do smart girl stuff. Smart girl stuff. Let me do smart girl stuff. Smart girls put lids on their drinks. Ah. That kind of smart girl stuff. Thanks for the lime LaCroix. It's really hitting the spot. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Gotta keep that sparkling water going. You, you have know? the best. You know how, like, there's people in, like, friends, friend groups who, like, the best, like, DJs, the best navigators. You have the best snack and beverage. Like, you have that entire thing on lock. Thank you. I work really hard you do, <laughs> so that everybody has an option. You do an excellent job of, like, stocking Thanks. the fridge up here. Thanks. And there's more beers downstairs that I'm like, mm, <laughs> I'll grab one it's if, always, if it's a request. I've never opened it and not been, like, shocked at the variety of drinks that I have <laughs> available to me. And they're always, like, rotating. It's always different stuff. Yeah. And it's right here. It's in our, sorry, we have a, a I don't even know if it's a mini fridge, but it's, like, an old style, like, apartment size fridge it's really small yeah but it does have a freezer Mm -hmm. and we've got all the drinks that we could ever need right within our grasp it's delightful and i've never been happier to have a fridge in this room (laughs) because this is where we do movie night yeah this is the this is the lounge yeah i'm super happy about my lounge and ryan put up a thing for us today he put up curtains for us it's beautiful isn't it okay let's get into this really terrible true crime shall we oh Okay, we're going to take a sharp left. Yeah, sharp left. I realized I was like, this feels like the beginning of an episode where we just kind of chitter chatter. Oh. And then I was like, oh, wait. We got to move on. We're in the middle of an episode here. Okay, before we get started, my sources. uh, Main source is a wonderful episode of Once Upon a Crime by Esther Ludlow. Mm. Um, Sharing that maiden name. And uh, she did a really deep dive into this case. I would highly recommend listening to it. Also, an article written by Emily Langer for the Washington Post and an article by Aaron Blakemore of History.com. Okay. Historically, domestic violence has been written into laws that it is okay to beat your wife as long as you don't murder her. Basically, what I'm saying is that it is fairly recent development for men to be held accountable for their act- in their actions. Oh. Um, even as far as, like, the 50s, and 60s and i think even into the 70s like did you know police would not be able to arrest somebody for domestic battery unless they witnessed it happen what yeah like they couldn't arrest somebody unless they physically saw it happen so So, like the police could roll up and she could be beaten into a bloody pulp mm -hmm. but unless they saw him throw a blow couldn't arrest him for it do you want to know what crazy sorry to derail this you know what crazy crime statistic i just learned what's up 86% 86% of all violent crime victims are women. That's a lot. That is a lot. And I had the screenshot from the Department of Justice that released that information. So okay, I'll send it to you. Wow. Yeah, that's really scary. It's so high. Oh, God. Anyway. <sighs> um, Francine Moran was born August of 1947. Her family lived in the country just outside of Lansing, Michigan, and her mother was a waitress and her dad was a farmer. She had five siblings and seemed to have a pretty good childhood, although they did have to stretch their, mo- their money. Um, her father did have a drinking problem and would drink a lot of the weekend away, uh, but it didn't, I didn't see any articles where it said like that was particularly violent, just that he drank, drank a lot, and okay. that was probably the source of their money issues. Ah. Um, in 1962, when Francine was 15, she met James Mickey Hughes, who was 18. One night after hanging out with friends, Mickey offered to drive Francine home, and she accepted. Uh, However, before he dropped her off, he tried to kiss her, and she pushed him away. He gave up after a while and let her leave. 
Uh, she decided that he was a creep, but later she ran into him again a couple of months later, and he asked her out, and she agreed. Her best friend Sharon Taylor was also dating Mickey's best friend, so they liked being together. It was basically like a built-in double date all the time. Cute. Soon, Mickey took Francine to meet his parents, and Mickey seemed to be moving very quickly. He was pressuring her for sex and was the first to say, I love you. While Francine was flattered, she never really had uh, this kind of attention from a boy before and didn't really know how to respond. Oh. Uh, and Francine tried to break up with him a few times, but he was persistent, and she felt bad for um, being cruel to him. Don't let boys make you feel bad for not liking that. <laughs> it's rude. It is. It's, I'm, uh. I'm, so, I'm sorry. It's not funny. Stop feeling bad about not. You don't have to be considerate of everybody all the time. Right. Especially men who are treating you poorly. Right. And. It's okay to not like somebody back. Right. You're not obligated by anything. No. So, anywho, obviously it does not get better. (laughs) We're already very heated about this. Yes. As she turned 16, the pressure was even more consistent. Uh, When she still refused to have sex with him, he started talking about getting married. Eventually, she started to get worn down, and she accepted a proposal. Wow. Yeah. It's like grooming her. Yeah. A few days before the wedding, uh, Sharon, her friend, Francine, Mickey, and then Sharon's boyfriend, Bill, all went to a party together. Uh, The girls saw a couple other girls walking into a party that used to date Bill and Mickey, and Sharon and Francine suddenly were like, meh, we don't really want to go now. Like, these other girls are going to be there. No thanks. Hmm. Can we do something else? And the boys were like, "Mm, nope, we're still going in. And they're like, but we don't want to. And they said, fine, wait in the car. Oh, gross. So Francine was irritated, and she decided to take the car. (laughs) (laughs) She drove to Mickey's parents' house, and she knew Mickey was following her. She was being playful and laughing as she ran into the house. Mickey chased after her and grabbed her by the blouse and put a hand on her throat and said, Don't you ever take my car. (gasps) Oh. Francine burst into tears and apologized, but this was the first time that he ever laid hands on her. Oh, my God. They got married on November 4th, 1963. Francine left high school and Mickey decided he wanted to get a better job. So as soon as they got married, he quit his job. Without having another one lined up. Oh. Francine and Mickey stayed with Mickey's parents and she quickly realized that the boys in the house were treated much differently than the girls. The girls were required to wait on the boys hand and foot, uh, basically be subservient to them. And Mickey had two brothers, I think. Uh Uh-oh. Um, the abuse Francine would suffer started on their honeymoon. Francine was getting ready to go out for the night with her new husband when he accused her of wearing something too revealing. He pushed her down and tore off all her clothes. Jesus. Yeah. Mickey was always, uh, on about her clothing. He didn't want her to wear shirts tucked in because he felt like it revealed her figure too much. One day while Mickey was out, she did wear her shirt tucked in, but when he heard him coming home, she untucked it and he noticed that it was wrinkled. He dragged her upstairs and ripped off her clothes, screamed obscenities at her. Uh, Francine was embarrassed because they were living with his family and she knew that they could hear him. Oh. Later, Mickey apologized and said that he just loved her too much. Francine thought that if she would have just listened to him and done as he said, he wouldn't have lost his temper. Mm. So already God. the cycle of abuse is yeah. pretty, pretty standard. One day, while hanging around the house, Mickey brought a friend over. After he left, Mickey accused Francine of looking at him. 
Oh, my God. She explained that she'd never seen hands that big before. And Mickey delivered a punch straight to her face, sending Francine to the floor. He called her a whore and hit her repeatedly. Francine fought back, and Mickey's father came up to tell him to knock it off, and this just pissed him off more, and he turned on his father. Eventually, his mother called the police. When they arrived, Mickey took a swing at an officer, and that's what got him arrested. Oh, of course. Right. He was booked for assault and battery, but was released. Oh, my God. Mickey once again apologized to Francine, and she forgave him, but they moved in with her family now instead. Of course, he was on his best behavior. Sure. Um, he got a job, all that kind of good stuff. Francine and Mickey ended up finding an apartment close to her parents. However, pretty soon, he's up to his old violent tricks. Mm. He accuses Francine of looking at other men frequently and hit, would hit her every time he accused her of that. Oh, God. Francine folded into herself and felt that if she isolated herself, she would have less of a chance to do something that would enrage Mickey. They shared a vehicle, and one day, Francine fell asleep and missed her alarm to pick Mickey up from work. She woke up to him standing over her screaming. He was convinced that she was with another man and tore the house apart to look for her supposed lover. Obviously, he didn't find anyone and punished her nonetheless for getting him worked up. Oh, my God. He decided that she could not take the car. Once he forbid her from seeing her mother, uh, a couple of friends had stopped by and said that they were headed that way and they'd give her a ride there and back. Mickey said no. She was furious and over his jealousy, so she grabbed her coat and went to leave. Mickey grabbed her and pulled her back into their apartment. He slammed the door in her face, um, or slammed the door in the face of her friends as they stood there. He beat her fiercely that day. Did the friends do anything? He locked him out. Did they call the police? For what? He just drug his wife inside the house to beat her. The The cops don't care. I, like, the whole Why? time, I want you to understand that calling the cops was, there was no point. Because if they didn't see it happen, they can't do anything. They don't want to get messed up, mixed up into it. I have, like, a paragraph on this later, but basically the cops would say that these were, like, their most violent calls. And so they didn't want to go. What? And then they didn't want to piss off the dude that was beating the shit out of his wife because they know that he's not going to get any time if, like, he's not going to spend any time in jail. I wonder if domestic violence calls are, like, the scariest calls for cops to show up to. Yeah, I'm sure they probably are. Because they're, like, so tumultuous. Right. God, that is... Why did it take us so long to realize women are property? Like, why? I don't know. I wish I had answers for that. I don't. Um, okay, so he beat her that day, and she believes it was the worst encounter she'd have up, had up until this point. The next day, she called her brother to come get her. Uh, she stayed with her parents for a few days, and they had to take the phone off the hook to keep and to keep the door locked to keep Mickey out. But after a few days, her mother said that she should talk to him and work things out one way or another. <sighs> of course, Mickey was able to convince her to come home with him. Soon, Francine found that she was pregnant. She was hopeful that this would be a turning point for their marriage. While he didn't hit her while she was pregnant, he was very emotionally abusive. Francine gave birth to Christy Marie in late December. Mickey continued to have friends over and lived like a regular 18-year-old with no responsibilities. Francine felt like she was raising two children because she was always picking up after Mickey and his cronies. After an evening of picking up beer cans and cigarette butts, Francine said that she was sick of this. Right in front of his friends, he hit her full force. Um, they were back into the violent cycle of abuse, only now it would happen no matter who was around. Oh. Mickey was an all-around bad dude. 
Soon, Francine found that he, out that he was cheating on her with a lot of diff- different women, and he was also not putting his full paycheck into the account, and he would spend it on booze and other nonsense. Jesus. Um, when Christy was nine months old, Francine found out she was pregnant again. <gasps> Jemmy was born in 1966. A third child, Dana, was born in 1969. During those years, things were just as bad. Mickey... Ha- was always in between jobs. They had very little money with more mouths to feed. Francine was in a deep depression and starting to show signs of PTSD, although the traumatic stress was still ongoing. Right. After Dana was born, Francine went to the doctor to ask for birth control pills, but the doctor was Catholic and wouldn't prescribe any oh, to her. Oh, for fuck's sake. I forget about this time where... Like, cops aren't going to do anything for domestic violence. Doctors get to decide who gets birth control. It's just a wild time. I like how you say this time. And, like, yesterday I watched a TikTok of this girl who was date raped. Oh, Jesus. And taken to a Catholic hospital. And they refused to do a rape kit. They refused to test her for any drugs. No way. They refused to give her plan B. It is a Catholic hospital. I hate it. We are not far. We're not. Out of this. Like, this is, my mom was born in 1963. So she would have been born the year that they got married. So, I mean. We're not even one generation n- out. No, no. <sighs> okay. The doctor was Catholic, wouldn't prescribe them to her, and soon after she found out she was pregnant with their fourth child. Oh my gosh, that's so many babies. So many babies in such a bad situation. And you, what is so sad is you know that this is not consensual. No. Sex between two partners. No. Sure isn't. God. While she was pregnant with kiddo number four, Mickey decided that she was going to um, see what kind of work that he could, like, go get in Florida. Oh. Um, he said that he would send for her once he got a job lined up. No, the fuck won't. Nope. Before he left, she asked for money to keep the kids fed while he was gone, and he was furious that she'd ask him for money, and she ran from him and hid next to the refrigerator. He ended up tripping over the fridge and breaking it. I'm sorry. He tipped over the fridge and mm. broke it. Uh, he left her with no money, no, f- no food, and what little food they did have spoiled. Oh, God. Francine decided it was time for ask for help. She went down to the welfare office, but they were hesitant to help because she was married. An older gentleman sat and listened to her story. She told him of the abuse and that she didn't have any money to buy soap. She and her kids were hungry and dirty. He said, I have the paperwork that you need and handed her her a form to file for divorce. Good for him. Yep. So. Here's the form you need. Here we go. (laughs) Plop. Yes. Finally, in 1971, the divorce was finalized. Thank God. Mickey was living with his parents again, and Francine was doing her best for the kids and herself. Mickey, being the total asshole that he always was, was driving and ran a stop sign. He hit another car, and he was really badly injured. Mickey was? Yep. Hmm. He had broken bones and a head injury. When Francine found out about the accident, she rushed to the hospital. There, she was manipulated by his family into staying uh, and taking care of him. Oh, my God. When he woke up, she was the first person that he asked for, which I think that was in almost all of the articles I read and then in Once Upon a Crime, and I just thought it was really interesting. Like, that would be such a romantic thing for anybody who hadn't lived in this cycle of abuse. Like, you're... 
Yes. Like, ex-husband wakes up from a coma, you're there to take care of him, and the first person he asks for is you. It's a Lifetime movie. Yeah. However. However, this, this is... woman did not have that life, but people, like, still talked about it in that way. Like, it was romantic. Yeah. And it's not. Of course she's the first one he asked for. She, she gives him Everything. everything. At this point, Francine was living in a house next door to Mickey's parents. After the accident, Mickey moved back in with Francine, and she felt obligated to take care of him due to his current state. Later, Francine would wonder if the head injury made his violent behavior worse, or if that it was that he was disabled and had difficulty doing things that he would have easily done before. Either way, the cycle continues. How, this is not an appropriate question, but like, how disabled is, like, what do you mean? How um, injured is he? I know that he had several um, bones broken in a leg um, and then a head injury, but he was still very capable of, like, full body movement. Okay. Um, enough to continue to hit wow. and abuse Francine. Okay. Um, so whatever disability he did have, it didn't disable him enough to stop this Was cycle. It, he didn't get injured enough. Nope. Uh, Mickey beats Francine regularly, and sometimes the cops get called. When he swings at the cops, that's when they book him for a night for assault. But back then, the police didn't want to deal with domestic cases, so they never arrested him for beating Francine. Oh, for the love of Peter and Paul. Refusing to look for work, Mickey started drinking more heavily and beating Francine every few days. Sometimes it would last for hours or sometimes just for a few minutes, and he would leave and go to the bar. Then he would come back and start again, Francine said. Sometimes a few days would go by peaceful, but I would go to bed at night thinking that I might wake up being slugged. Oh, man. I learned that if I fought back, I, it only made him more angry, Francine adds. I thought, well, maybe I could kill myself. But then I thought, if I kill myself, who's going to take care of my kids? Nobody could love them like me. I would conjure up schemes about how I would sneak off to the airport with the kids and leave. But I, could, but I would picture us sitting on a park bench with nowhere to go. Then I would get scared thinking about what he would do if he found me. Eventually, she convinces him that she should go back to school so she can get a better paying job. She gets her GED and applies for a grant that would cover most of the college classes. Her grant was approved and she started attending classes. She loved school. She made friends and was doing well with the coursework. Good for her. Yeah. And her, part of her past, um, when she was in high school, she was like the top of her class okay. and did very well in school. Smart girl. Yeah. Um, so she was super excited to be going to college. Yeah. It was a lot of work. She got up every morning at 5 a.m. to get the kids ready for school and then breakfast made for them and Mickey. She, then she would go to school and then she would work at nights as well. Mm. March 9th, 1977 started like any other day. She woke up early, got the kids ready, and went to her classes. A friend had asked her to take her home and she said sure. She got home about 10 minutes later than she normally would have at 1.40 p.m. She saw the kids were outside, which she thought was odd, but they were playing, and when they went, she got to the door, she realized that the door was locked. He locked all the kids out since they got out of school at noon that day. Because it was an early release day, they didn't get lunch, so they were complaining about being hungry. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Uh, Francine went inside and started to figure out what she should do for dinner. Immediately, Mickey started tearing into her, saying that her cooking sucks and that it's all greasy stuff and um, everything she makes makes him sick. She does her best to ignore him and puts all the kids in the car. Uh, Dana, who would have been 10 around this time, is spending a night with a friend. Uh, so it was just 
12-year-old Christy and her sister's sister. Okay. Yeah. Francine decided to do TV dinner since that would be easy and wouldn't take a lot of time. When she got home, Mickey started getting things out of the bags and was asking, what'd you buy this for? How much did this cost? When he got to the TV dinners, that's when things really got bad. He was pissed. She tried to ignore him and say that that, uh, she would make him something else later, but he was like, I don't even want to smell it cooking. So she went to turn on the stove and he turned it off. So she went to turn off the stove and he turned it off. They went back and forth like this for a long time. Uh, he started beating her and she yelled for the kids to go upstairs. He started telling her that she was going to drop out of school and she refused. He repeated it and she refused it. He got quiet and told her that she would have to trade in her car for money. So he just like did a 180 on her and was like, okay, well, you have to trade in your car for money. Like, why? Just another thing to torture her. That's all. And if she doesn't have a car, she can't go to school. Mm-hmm. Um, if she refused this, he said that he would destroy the car with a sledgehammer. What a fucking idiot. Yep. He picked up her books and started tearing them apart. He ripped the pages out of the textbooks and crumpled up all of her notes. Damn, textbooks are so expensive. Right. Uh, weeks of her work were just being destroyed before her eyes. He told her to burn it. In a daze, she took all of the paperwork and put it in the burn pile outside. He asked her again if she was going to go back to school, and this time she said no. When she came back inside, he threw all the food that she had just gotten on the floor and told her to clean it up. When she did, he took the trash can and dumped it out again and shoved food in her hair and face. Francine was bawling but picked up the mess. He went upstairs, and after a while, he called for her. She went up to their bedroom and found him lying on the bed with his zipper undone. And he said, how about some? While she was absolutely revolted by the idea, she knew that the beatings were always worse when she refused him sex. And he would just fall asleep afterward, which meant she'd be able to take care of her kids. Oh, God. Afterward, she let the kids out of their room. All of them were wide-eyed. They'd seen and heard so much of what happened in the kitchen, and they were all just like, I'm not hungry anymore. At this point, Francine was a shell. All she could think of was freedom. She could just put the kids in the car and go, and it would be hours before he was awake. She would have to start completely over with no belongings, but it was worth it. She snuck upstairs and got the keys out of his pants pocket, and then she realized Dana wasn't home and she'd need to wait for him. As she waited, she got more and more anxious. Eventually, an idea manifested. She could just burn the house down. She couldn't take any of it with her anyway. And then she thought, what about Mickey? What about Mickey? Well, yes, I'll just burn him too. Oh. So she went to the cellar and got a gas can that she, they used to fill the lawnmower. She doused the bedroom with gasoline with Mickey lying on, in a drunken stupor on the bed. She put all the kids in the car, went back inside, and lit a match. The fire grew quickly, and the children could see flames coming from the house as they drove away. Francine had started to panic and didn't have a clue what to do next. And Christy was yelling, we have to go to the police. And that's what she did. She pulled into the police station and yelled, I did it, to anyone who would listen. She asked for a lawyer when they started to ask her to write her statement formally. Mickey was found after the fire was put out in the living room. He had died of smoke inhalation. His mother saw the fire and tried to save him, but she was held back by police and firemen at the scene. Typically, defense attorneys would use a self-defense as a justification for the actions of women who have been brutalized by their husbands. 
but Francine had waited nearly three hours from the time of her assault until she lit the match. Self-defense wasn't an option. Oh, no. Her legal counsel had her examined by a mental health professional and decided to enter the plea of not reason by guilt. Not guilty by reason of insanity? Temporary insanity. Temporary insanity. Yes. Uh, They agreed that her insanity began when she was forced to burn her textbooks and that and say she wouldn't go back to school, and then ended shortly after she let the match. So that was a really important part of this case, that it was temporary. Okay. She faced a jury of 10 women and two men who agreed that she was inside insane at the time of the murder, and she was set free. She spent 13 years of her life being beaten and eight months in jail, and at 30 years old, she was finally free. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Francine's case was a benchmark case for women's rights and spousal abuse. Faith McNulty wrote a book about the case with the help of Francine called The Burning Bed. It was also made into a movie starring Farrah Fawcett. I love Farrah Fawcett. I know. The book and the movie uh, shed even more light on domestic violence. A decade after the murder, Congress passed the Violence Against Women Act, which established a national domestic violence hotline, forced all states and jurisdictions to recognize and enforce victim protection orders, and provided funding for domestic violence training for law enforcement officers, among other provisions. This is the case that VAWA was... Really? Yep. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Thank... I... Well, a weird sentiment, but... Yeah. I'm glad that there was a catalyst... Yes. ...for that act. Even today, 20 people per minute are physically abused by an intimate partner, and one in four women and one in nine men will be victims of severe physical abuse by an intimate partner during their lifetime. So, if you are experiencing domestic violence, call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233, or you can chat with a worker at uh, thehotline.org. And that is the story of Francine and the burning bed. Holy Monte Cristo, (laughs) that was heavy. Sorry. It's okay. (laughs) Yeah, it's not not our normal story, for sure. No. Not quite as straightforward, but... Is she alive? No, she died when she was like 60. Uh, um, unfortunately, it just sounds like things didn't get a whole lot better for Francine and her family. Oh. Um, I know when she ends up getting remarried. Okay. And Nicole is the youngest daughter's name. They all moved in with this new guy in like Tennessee or something. Okay. And shortly after they moved in, Christy kind of... I think she left home when she was, like, 17, and she and her mom fought a lot. Oh, yeah. So she left home. She was kind of painted as this, like, like wild child. Mm-hmm. And uh, then it's just Nicole, Dana, and Jimmy at the house, and Nicole says that her stepfather is molesting her. Oh, God. And then I think there was a tr- – I don't want to say – I don't know if I want to say trial. I, it got media attention. But, like, the stepdad said that Nicole just wanted to go be with Christy. She Mm -hmm. wanted to go be with her older sister. Um, So that's why she started that. But, yeah. Narcissists prey on vulnerable people. Yep. So um, it just doesn't sound like things got any better. A whole lot better for them. Oh, God. That's devastating. Yeah, Francine died young. So. (sighs) Holy hell. I know. That one's one. I listened to that episode of Once Upon a Crime a long time ago, and that's always been a case that has stuck with me. Yeah. And, I mean, 
uh, Esther's episode is like an hour and a half long. Like, and she just does one episode or one topic per episode. Mm. And she does, I'm telling you, like a deep dive. Good for her. Yeah, I love. Good job, Esther. Her show. It's so good. Uh, but yeah. Do you have a bright and shiny? Yeah. What was that? Um, I went to my very first football game. You saw the Bears play. I saw the Bears play. It was so fun. They have a brand new um, head boy. His his name is Fields. Uh-huh. He's a quarterback. I don't know. A head boy. A head boy. <laughs> he scored his first goal. Yay. Touchdown while we were there. While we were there, it was Ian was very excited about it, and Aww. I just like to watch Ian when he's having a good time. That's so. exciting. Yeah. It's the best. It's the best. So, what's your bright and shiny? Um, I think so. My bright and shiny today is going to be Ryan. Aw, Rain. Um, I feel very lucky that he believes me, like believes in me, like no holes barred. Anything that I set my mind to, anything that I'm like, hey, I want to try this or hey, I want to do this, he just is He's like, hell yeah, absolutely, like yes, do that. Um, so I am lucky to have a partner that doesn't make me feel like weird about wanting to try new things. Yeah, I love that's that. All. That's what a man should do. Yeah, not even a man, but like a partner. Yeah, your partner should. Be excited so, for you to do stuff. Yeah. You're, if you're like, hey, I want to go pick mulberries for a living, they should be like, fuck yeah. Yeah. Go do that. How much does that pay an hour? Right. Let's figure <laughs> out a way to make your dream happen. Yeah. So. so. Cute. Um, thanks for yeah. listening. Thanks follow for us, listening. Follow us on the social meds. Um, Send us an email because we have exciting stuff. I want to say thank you to all the really fucking cool listener stories that we have collected so yes. far. There are some that I'm so excited to say. They're going to be, they're good. They are some of so them are good. good. So, so if you have a good one or an okay one, send it to us. Yeah, let, let us, us be the judge. Let us be that. the judge of that, please. Yeah. Those make no qu- Hasty decisions here. <laughs> uh, if you like us, you can rate us. We are on Apple Podcasts, or you can rate us on Podchaser if you don't have the Apple. Uh, but we appreciate it so, so, so much. It's so helpful. We love you a lot. Be kind to yourself. And to others. Goodbye. Goodbye.